I always wanted to know who the best player was on tour simply because I wanted to actually work as hard. And then I ran into a, a little guy by the name of George Knudsen out of Canada. And I watched him hit the golf ball. I watched him with the wide stance, taking the club back way inside, releasing the club. One of the greatest ball strikers I'd ever seen. Now Ballesteros. With a putt that could win him the 113th British Open. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the McKellar Golf Podcast, otherwise known as Morning Drive. My name is Lawrence Donegan. And before I introduce you to my co-host, Mr. John Huggin, I'll just briefly run through a bit of business. Uh, I was proofreading uh, issue three of McKellar magazine this morning. It is, well, I'm biased, obviously. It is absolutely wonderful. Uh, I think the best yet. Uh, you will be able to subscribe soon at mckellarmagazine.com. Please do so. Uh, we pay our journalists very well, unlike uh, most other publications, as I'm finding out to my cost these days. Proud to do so, but it requires uh, we re requires us to sell lots and lots of magazines. So if you want to support great journalism, mckellarmagazine.com. Thanks. Uh, on to the show, my co-host, Mr. John Huggin. How are you doing, Huggy? I'm very well. A wee bit jet-lagged, just back from Turkey, but otherwise I'm all right. Somebody said to me, sent me a text, saying that you put the moaning in moaning drive. Can you Absolutely. That? I'm very proud of that fact. <laughs> anyway, enough of our uh, witty banter. We'll go on to our guest. Uh, really special guest this week. Uh, good pal of yours. Good, well, I, I'm not sure I would call him a good pal, but I, I'm not sure he would call me a good pal, <laughs> but certainly a pal, Mr. Dennis Pugh. How are you doing, Dennis? I'm doing good. I, I put him as good pal. I've known him too long for anything else. Yeah, well, uh, absolutely. Um, Dennis, uh, well, I suppose I should introduce you. Uh, world known golf coach. Uh, actually, I'm not going to introduce you. I'm just going to, uh, all listeners, please uh, go to Google, type in John Huggin uh, plus Dennis Pugh, and uh, the top search item is a piece that Huggy wrote uh, for Digest uh, just before the Open this year. Huggy, you got uh, some response from that piece, didn't you? I did. Well, it was originally done for uh, the golfworld.com website, um, but the editor of Golf Digest, Jerry Tardy, liked it so much that it got uh, punted into the magazine as well, which was nice. Uh, Dennis, the headline said uh, lowest profile, high profile golf coach in the world. Uh, you've uh, taught <laughs> well all sorts, Frank Nobolo, Monty, famously, uh, and yeah. uh, 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 you know more. Uh, you're Ross Fisher, uh, Fran obviously Francesco Molinari. Uh, do, do you like that description? Is that something that, that you aim for? Low profile, high profile? Uh, yeah, I, I didn't mind it. You don't get to write your own headlines, though, do you? I, I thought it was okay. I I'm not sure that I can claim a very low profile considering I get abused and give out abuse on Twitter pretty regularly, but that's another story. Within the golf uh, business, I've been doing it a long while and really uh, been fortunate to work with some great players, as you said. Best player you've ever worked with, Dennis? I mean, we're not going to go into massive, but best player, is it, is it Francesco? Well, it's it's very hard because you start looking at players and, and choosing which is your favourite kid sort of thing, you know. Uh, <laughs> It's, it's tough. I mean, it, you've got to go by categories. You know, the most the most talented was no doubt was Monty because Monty could go for weeks without playing golf, pick the club up, and within two or three shots, be hitting it as if he was uh, you know playing the last day of a major championship. I mean, 
that's a talent. And, you know, we, we'll talk about talent, no doubt, because I'm very big on, on the existence of talent. The golfer that's probably that I've worked with that's made the most of his talent and worked hard and refined it and polished it is obviously Francesco Molinari. Um, fantastic work ethic and, and surrounds himself with not just myself, but others to advise him in every part of his game. And, you know, he really has uh, capitalised on every, every bit of talent he's got. The one that's very interesting, uh, obviously, beside yourself, is the Dave Allred guy. C- can you just tell people who he is and, and, and what he gets up to? Because he worked with Luke Donald, didn't yeah. he? Yeah, Dave, Dave is what's called a performance coach. Now, there's nothing like him around before uh, he arrived, and there's not. I'm sure there's guys that will claim, yeah, I'm doing the same thing. But he's the, the leading expert in in taking sportsmen and and getting them to improve their performance in competitive situations and the thing about Dave is it's not the sport that he's a specialist in uh, his his topic is rugby and he was famous for helping Johnny Wilkinson in rugby but he does all manners of sports and he doesn't have to be an expert or even knowledgeable at all about the technique of the performance because he's a measuring the performance when you sort of stress test it by making uh, the athlete, the player, do many different types of uh, tests and exercises uh, un- under pressure. You know, his saying is making it ugly, getting it, getting used to ugly, so that when the inevitable ugly happens in whatever sport you do, you can still perform because you're used to practicing ugly. Um, that's a nutshell because it's obvious that everyone in Francesco's team does more than the glossary of explanation of why we're there. I uh, I noticed on Twitter uh, there was a the European tour put a video up of uh, Molinari doing some drill on the practice range. Yep. Now yep. Uh, and then, <laughs> yeah, you, your uh, your response was it's our secret. So come on, Dennis. Uh, actually, a, a friend who, a friend of mine uh, who shall remain nameless, he reckoned it was all about uh, gaining extra power, uh, extra distance. True or false? Uh, well, it's our secret. You know, <laughs> part of that did you misunderstand? Uh, uh, but if, if specifically, I won't go into the detail, but it is about everything that we're doing is, is try to combine the flow of power into impact so he can get maximum um, out of the uh, athleticism that he has. So Rod Goldruff, his trainer, Goldruff, his trainer says, uh, let's get him in the gym, let's get him working, let's get him fit. All that extra energy is um, available to transfer through the swing into the ball. And these drills and exercises you see him doing are simply ways of freeing up his swing um, so that he can transfer that energy into the ball. So your pal is right. Yeah, it's about trying to get more power, but we're very aware as a, a group of coaches and Francesco, of course, himself, that that power is useless if he starts hitting it off the planet. And, you know, that is the problem. If you go for extra power, it's sometimes hard to keep the ball in play. And, and that's the that's the, the conundrum that's the devil's uh, detail that it really isn't just about adding power you also have to keep it on the golf course but you need both nowadays but i don't i can't think of in my mind straight off the top of my head down anybody who has gained such distance uh, in the modern game over such a because the saying is you know you you hit it as far as as far as you hit it and that and that's kind of it but molinari has gained i mean he's gained a lot hasn't he yeah, it's, a, it's about 20 yards um, yeah. on the tee shot through the air and a, a club longer. And, you know, that was done, as I said, by paying attention to taking all the breaks out of his swing. 
And what brakes mean is they're the things that you put in. This, uh, a brake is something you put in to help you hit the ball more consistently out the sweet spot. So there's certain technical stuff that players do that they do to make sure they hit the ball consistently and almost take away power. Um, and there's also the blockages, power blockages. It's like having a flow of water that's got a block in it and, and the water can't flow through nice and evenly and fast. So you take out the blockage, you get the, the sink debugged or whatever they deplugged and uh, get the get the flow of water again get full power so it's about taking two approaches letting power flow through your swing and also finding things that are stopping the power to allow you to hit the ball better now that's the danger zone and when you do it and everybody that has thought wow it'd be great to hit the ball further it comes with the risk because we're not in the tour pro we're not trying to make a joe miller the longest driver on the planet what we're trying to do is find the longest each player can be and keep it on the planet. So it's it's a different test. And, and I have to say, uh, it was a necessary test two years ago when we set off on the venture, two or three years ago now. It was just that Francesco knew that without the extra power and without putting better, he wasn't going to get to be um, the player that he wanted to be. He was very aware of his deficiencies. He didn't hit it far enough and he didn't putt well enough. And both had to be fixed. My job was to help him hit it further, and Phil Kenyon's done a great job of helping him putt better. Dennis, do, do you not that distance line? Do you not have to go over it to find out where it is? Yeah, it's a very dangerous one. That one because if you you do have to go to your absolute extent, but if you go over it and you can't find the sweet spot, it's actually quite hard to come back. You know that's available to you, so you know. Let's say you swing at 150 mile an hour and you can actually find the sweet spot at 120. But when you go to 122, 123 miles an hour, suddenly you can't find the sweet spot. And it's very tempting to go, well, I've got this speed. I'll just keep practicing until I find the sweet spot. And yeah. you find yourself missing cuts and going back down the order of merits, you know, the rankings and everything. So you've got to be very careful about trying to go for power if you're a top pro. Um, unfortunately, and, and it's the debate can go on for an hour or two in itself, should we be having that situation? And my feelings are well known. I coach everyone that needs to get more power to get more power because the game has been a constant grind over the last 20, 25 years to hit the ball further, hit it further, the equipment. Everything's geared to hitting it further. And, and I don't think it's right, but I do believe that we're playing a field where power is king, so you better get if you want to be king, you've got to get power. That's the debate, you know. <laughs> Should that be so? Well, there's no debate it is so, so we have to deal with reality. Um, the debate would be, should it be so? But that may be another story for another time. I, I noticed that uh, Jamie Sadlowski missed it, uh, Q2 in the States last week, Dennis. That's, a, I think, a former world uh, long driving champion. So he illustrates yeah. the point. He's got the power but can't find a sweet spot. So one question, one one more question on this, Dennis. So how come you guys have unlocked it? I mean, I'm presuming everybody else is trying to unlock the same safe or the same secret. Yeah. Or how did, did you manage to do it and not a lot of other people have? Uh, probably it's either fantastic talent on our part or pure luck. <laughs> or, just, <laughs> or, or maybe we just worked in the right areas areas and work correctly at it so uh, i joke but really it's uh, success in anything is about your talent to do the job you're trying to do but also your ability to work correctly at it and a little bit of luck i think 
anyone who denies the existence of talent also seems to deny the existence of luck and think it's all about just hard work. Well, sure, you put in hard, correct, thoughtful work, but you do need people who know what they're doing and you do need a bit of luck at the right time when it all fits into place and you get results just when you need them. Uh, there was something you mentioned in uh, Huggy's piece about, I wonder if it's this, Dennis, that uh, you you guys were kind of, or I think it was Francesco who mentioned it, you guys work with a, a view to a long term. I mean, a lot of people are looking for quick fixes. Uh, yeah. And I wonder if that's if that's our downfall. You, you know, again, Francesco talked about your motivation to find, you know, quotes and quotes, the marginal gains of David Brailsford thing, that, you know, these marginal gains, you know, at the edges. I wonder if that, that was because you were prepared to commit to a long-term plan. Yeah, we uh, definitely, we is an overused word because every sportsman talks about his team and ultimately they're responsible. It's an eye game with we, the team, sort of on the touchlines cheering on and then trying to help out when needed. But it's very important to consider what happened was that Francesco made the plan to do this and he asked me to get involved and we chatted at the Wisley over over the breakfast table several times before we went on the route of yes we need to do it and it was fully aware of the difficulties that could come but the most important thing and I think the one that surprised me was it came quicker perhaps than it should have done because the the build is quite difficult what we did was quite difficult but other factors fell into place with his performance and he won at um, Wentworth and then a whole run for six months he was literally the best golfer in the world, not because I coach him and like the guy, but he was amassing the most world ranking points for a period from uh, um, winning at Wentworth to the, the Ryder Cup and, and thereafter winning the race to Dubai in Dubai. And in that period, a lot of things fell our way. And, and that's where people, you know, they don't, they want it to be a binary situation. Yeah, it was all great. You did the right things and you worked hard, you worked correctly and you got back. In real terms, I expected it to take about a year longer. And I think certainly Francesco was prepared to wait a year longer. But what accelerated it has put its own pressures on because this year has been harder to maintain that progress because it isn't a straight line curve. There's definitely been a little um, less good performances this year, although still some good ones. And yet, you know, I'd almost think we got the years back to back. 2018 was such a great year. And then 2019 perhaps should have been the year that led to a great year. I see. We were talking earlier on there, Dennis, about uh, you know long-term planning and uh, I, I, you, you <laughs> notor- not notoriously—that's the wrong word—but you're not a big fan of giving out uh, short-term uh, golf tips on uh, on Twitter, which is again it's, it's kind of against the grain. I mean, I noticed one of my favourite teachers, Bradley Hughes, he's, he's always giving out tips on Twitter. Mick Doherty does a, a Twitter tip series. Why are you not into that kind of stuff, Dennis? Uh, you know, I, I respect the guys that want to do it and go out there and throw a you know huge pot of paint at the ceiling and hope it all sticks <laughs> and doesn't make a mess of the floor. Um, but, you know, if your job is to clean floors, it's not a great idea to throw paint at the ceiling. And... Uh, from my point of view, is that coaching should be very player-specific. You're a coach. You're not a tip giver. You're out there uh, working with a player, and it's about feeling his mood. Um, maybe I uh, would say one-on-one conversation. I'm not even great on having others watch what's happening because 
it, it destroys that, that coaching relationship with uh, the player that you're trying to help become better. And, you know, one, one thing is, I can throw a, a, a tip out, and a third of the people it will help, a third of the people it won't really matter, but a third of the people it will probably screw up. And that probably does matter because you're responsible for throwing something out that has made the game harder for somebody than make it easier. So, yeah, the guys that do it, respect, good, that's your job. But mine is cleaning the floor of all the stuff that uh, got <laughs> left over. <laughs> there is a word for it, but it's not very polite uh, to use. The uh, But what about your social media branding, Dennis? I mean, you, don't you worry about that? <laughs> <laughs> I have. I have less care for my social media branding at the ripe old age that I'm at. I could give two stuffs about it. People either like it or they don't. If I was after branding, I would be giving free tips. I would be putting out pictures of fluffy puppies and and uh, the like and telling the world what a wonderful place it is. And you just got to believe in yourself and you could be the open champion. And our politicians are a bunch of wonderful guys with the best interests of the country at heart. Heart and um, stuff like I almost said the wrong word. There's stuff like you can say whatever you like, Dennis. Huggy and I run this show. We can have we can say whatever I, I want you want. To about Dennis's table settings. I, lo- I love the table settings. Well, table settings was was actually my one concession to Twitter was table <laughs> settings because when it all got a bit heated, I needed something to take the heat out. And it was either, it was really I thought this people love the the table settings, and it is a a, a sort of crazy thing. It's just that one of my problems, and it is a problem, my wife will tell you it's a problem, is I'm OCD on everything. I think, I'm not even sure I can even say OCD because that's not begins where I am for perfection. So I have to lay a table and everything has to be perfect. So then she starts to moan at me about this and then I moan back. And we can have really good arguments over table settings, which I thought, well, if we can argue at home, we can do that on Twitter. But people sort of say there's a left-hander in the group or what wine you got tonight because it looks like a 2019 Chateau the whatever. And uh, it's wonderful. It is seriously something that proves that if you become the leading expert of something of no relevance, table settings, people start to, you you don't pick a fight. No one's going to have a fight over a table setting. Crikey. It's the one thing they don't want to fight over. Although now having had this conversation... Someone will come in and want to fight me over table settings. Does Nettie do the table settings or is it always you? It's always me because she <laughs> never gets right. And that's the thing. <laughs> it's always me. And sometimes it's, uh, it, I did once let her have one uh, a go and then, and people did pick up that it wasn't the master at work. So, uh, yeah, table settings a bit. But I have to say, she puts the food on the table. So it is a good uh, ideal mix, but she thinks I'm crazy to go near Twitter. And obviously with her job, she's not allowed near it. And that's one of the reasons why I occasionally say I ought not to be doing this, but I then get wound up and have to do it again. The addiction to Twitter is too strong. The uh, I should quickly mention that your wife, Nettie, is a Supreme Court judge in Bavaria. Is that right, Dennis? Yeah, yeah, it's an amazing thing. Uh, yeah. She's married to a bloke who, teach people, who teaches people to hit plastic for a living around the world and get ridiculous sums of money for being good at it. And she makes decisions that are really important on um, inheritance tax as a specialist subject. So she, uh, yeah, she works in the Supreme Court and is one of the 15 judges. And when we had our Supreme Court under focus, it was decided 
by powers that be that I perhaps shouldn't be commenting, which was wise. You can't really get um, upset governments to that, that extent. So I thought I'll, I'll save it for politics and not Supreme Court judgments. The uh, uh, and she's a, a very good player, uh, judging by your Twitter feed. I mean, not that you put a lot. Yeah. No, 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 she is. Uh, let's not, um, yeah. you know, let's not diminish that. Here, I, I want to move on, Dennis, because I know I don't want to take up, or we don't want to take up all your time this morning. The uh, you're very, just speaking about Twitter, you are very active um, on the whole Brexit uh, debate, and I don't want to get into the whys and wherefores of Brexit. But it's very kind of yep. interesting to me that uh, that a prominent figure in professional golf like yourself is prepared to sort of put himself out there, and I've noticed that's happening quite a bit. As, I mean, Lee Westwood uh, is another one uh, who's recently kind of yep. uh, commented on the whole Brexit debate, and and then Poulter jumped in uh, to a lesser extent. Uh, is there? I mean, do I, am I picking up this wrong? Is is there more guys in professional golf willing to maybe? Dirty, not dirty their feet, but you know, get involved in the, the kind of world beyond professional golf. I don't think it goes beyond certain individuals. I, I think that when Lee Westwood does his, he's a he's a senior player now, and he's interested in all sorts of things. And he tends, more often or not, to have similar views to myself. And then someone like Paul, Ian's just got his views on things, and he will fire away and. You know, I've made it a point never to argue with anyone, not even um, people I don't know. With people I do know, it's their opinion and I won't go there. Um, I know that many times I've been at tournaments where not just players, but spectators, caddies or anyone have, have really taken issue with me and said, why do you do it? Because I, I can. You know, it's my, <laughs> my Twitter. I do what I want. And yeah, and others follow. But I don't think it's a... A mass. I don't think there's uh, too many people out on tour who give much worry about what's my tea time tomorrow and um, would I have a good day on the golf course and what score would I shoot. That's always been the nature of the beast. A tour pro that thinks too much is probably um, not as effective as he should be because he has to think that hitting a piece of plastic in a foreign field is important. If he stops thinking that, he stops being effective competitor. And that's unfortunately true but it makes for sometimes dull um how was your day i shot 64 it was a great day i shot 78 it was a terrible day well yeah that's what they do for a living lawrence that dennis has been slightly you know modest about this i mean he and i have been friends for a very long time and i think brexit might be the first thing that we've ever agreed on politically (laughs) yeah but you know it's a perfect example of Someone yep. like yourself, with completely the wrong ideas on everything, can actually <laughs> find something, something to agree with me on. No, no, it's fun because you could actually be disagree, disagree without being disagreeable. You don't have yeah. to start a punch up over every disagreement. That's, uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I've always defended your right to be completely wrong on everything. So. <laughs> But I want to pick on something you said. It's the nature of the beast. So are you saying that you ca- you cannot be a world-class professional golfer if you have you know, what you know, that old British politician, Dennis Healy, called a, a hinterland? It's almost the case. You know, you could, really? whenever, you say you, whenever you say something so direct, there's always a, another view or another possibility of what could happen. But, you know, you're not... If you're a world-class golf pro competing at the highest level... Unless you've been doing it for a long while, like Lee or, or, or Poulter, it's a very hard thing for Ian or Lee to go, uh, they can do it, but it's a very hard thing for them to do because they are hurting 
their brand. Because as soon as you make a statement, 50% of the country, well, 52 to be precise, won Brexit 48 three years ago, wanted to stay. And it's probably changed. And I think it's changed for uh, more towards remain. But as soon as you do that, you're alienating half of your base of people you're trying to appeal to. And, you know, you talked earlier about brand. There's definitely branding in professional golfers. And they're a certain type of person. And giving out your politics is going to alienate alienate you on 50% of your market share. So in real terms, it's stupid to talk about it. But you reach a point where you perhaps get more mature on older age where you think, I want to have a say. Is it really possible to be the best in the world at anything, and let's use golf as an example, and be a rounded human being? <laughs> well... Rounded in the sense of seeing things other than golf. I mean, yeah. you've got this great way of making it sound like I'm going to say you cannot be number one without being a complete plonker. To be the best in the world at anything, you have to be so focused and so single-minded that you can't possibly be taking an interest in too many other things. That's, that's I agree a... entirely. Absolutely entirely. It's very very much a questioner because whatever field you take, whatever sphere of activity you're in, it's going to be that you better focus on that. And, and you know, I remember after 9-11 when the world wasn't right and we, the Ryder Cups were due and there was a question of whether to play the Ryder Cup at the Belfry or not. And I was on Sky and I said, the only time to play this Ryder Cup again will be when four-foot putts are important again. And they're mm. not right now. And there'll never be, uh, you know, never be a situation where you can try and make golf seem more important than, you know, world affairs or, or stuff of real tragedies that happen. And but in the in the makeup of human beings, you you start seeing golf as competitive sport or any other competitive sport has been the most important thing in the world. Then you can become number one at it. It's not a realistic starting point, is it, to, <laughs> to see sport as that important? But if it's not, you can't be. Yeah, well, I don't think I don't think it makes you a bad person, but it's never going to make no. you a round person. Yeah, you know? yeah, I'd agree. I'm That's the second time we've agreed. Uh, what do you think, Huggy? Would you like to see a world number one with a, you know, who was fully engaged, you know, in the way that Dennis is on Brexit or or? Well, yeah, obviously I would, but I don't I don't think that the two can ever overlap. I mean, I don't think you can be one with and be the other as well. I think they they preclude each other. Those two things. I think you do have to be. To even attempt it, you'd have to be a situation where you've, you're in your mature years. Yeah. You certainly can't start out that way. No. But I noticed in the golf.com <laughs> survey uh, that 49% of the PGA Tour uh, say they're going to vote for Trump next time round. Uh, is that still the way? Again, I'm not, I don't want to give you, you to give away any secrets or whatever, but is that still the kind of general you know, set, what, what it's like in, in, in that, you know, in the world, in the pro golf world now? It's I would say so, and obviously the figures prove so. Uh, but it, I'm surprised, and this sounds—it's uh, only 49 percent. I yeah. thought it would be more, which which may be a reflection on just how bad a job um, he's doing for them. But you know, they're going to vote. It's the—it's really is that they're going to vote in where, in where they feel that they're looking after their best interest is interest, not the interest of the majority, and that probably is the nature of what what the golf scene's about you're looking for your best you know and it, it's taken me a long while i i reckon 20 years ago i couldn't imagine having a conversation with myself now um as to the reason why i think it's society's better if if we're fairer in our society than 
you know, winner takes all and survival of the fittest, which actually is the world in which we grow up on as professional golf. I was firstly a player, then a coach. So it's natural, perhaps, see it as jungle mentality. You get paid if you're good and you go to the wayside and, and get thrown away if you're not. So it's, I wouldn't go for professional golf as being the moderates and the uh, people that are going to think about the others because when you don't play well, no one thinks about you. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty cutthroat. I think we could all agree on that. Actually, just moving on, uh, Dennis, we, we kind of deal yeah. with the week's events in golf. Speaking of uh, people with uh, hinterlands, uh, Eddie Pepperell, fourth hole or his 13th hole of the second of his third round, runs out of golf balls, does a tin cup. Uh, and runs out of golf balls and gets DQ'd. I have a theory um, on that. I think I, that golf, I, at times in Eddie's life, that golf is not interesting enough for him. I think he gets <laughs> bored and he just his mind wanders and he just starts doing stuff. I think that that's part of it. I think which doesn't. I mean, again, this is not a reflection on his character. I think he's. I think he's a really interesting guy. And I, I like him a lot. But there are times when I think he, he's he's better off somewhere else than than playing golf. Well, this is what I, this is what I'm talking about, Dennis. You know, the, I, the, there's a guy that clearly has some kind of hinter, hinterland. Uh, maybe he is a guy. Again, I don't. We're not knocking Eddie Pepper. We all love him, obviously. But there's a guy who maybe uh, you know does have a hinterland, and that you know ultimately that's what might uh, hold him back. I, mean, I don't know. Yeah, I, I that, think that Eddie's a fascinating character, and I think I, my view is to agree with your view, and uh, that he really does find it, or seems to find at times that golf doesn't quite do it for him. You know, there's other things happening and uh, he's more interested in those and, and, and you know, that little dimple in the back of his head may have even popped out on that particular occasion and said, wouldn't it be fun to see how many balls I could hit into the water now? I'm not saying he did, but subconsciously he might have done and just thought, this is, a, I'm getting bored out here, this will be fun. And uh, I thought the best thing that revealed it was when uh, he saw... One of the other players, I think it was Tyrrell Hatton, hit yes. on that green. And yeah. he said, oh, that's how it's done then, which just <laughs> some his great wit. And, I mean, there's nobody that doesn't like Eddie. Uh, Eddie Pepper is just a likeable guy because he does see it through his own viewpoint, as the world is. But he, he never chastises too many other people unless they're being complete bonkers. And then he does it brilliantly. I don't know. Is he too intelligent for golf? They reckon you have to be very intelligent or very stupid to play golf well, a uh, golf well, and um, 99% are in the second bracket. I think that's really harsh, but uh, anyone who says you have to be really intelligent to play golf doesn't uh, necessarily have the secret of the game. Because secret of the game is you have to quell all the emotions and all the thoughts and all the possibilities and believe that you, at this moment in time, can hit that bit of plastic onto that green 280 yards away over water and then hold the part where no one else in the field thinks you can do it. That's golf in a nutshell. I, I get quite amused yeah. by this, you know, when people start debating, as they do at the moment, uh, who, who's the best player in the world. I mean, I, I don't know if you would agree with this or not, Dennis, but the I, I think that the best player in the world is is a different guy every day, almost. The best player in the world is really only something you can measure over a period of time. So you have to decide what period you're going to measure it over. And then you, you can only do it on current performances, but over what? period of time and that's the key the world rankings use two years that's a long period yeah. but rightly so for you know many different reasons and uh, over the years it has been adapted and improved and uh, and the world rankings seem to be fairer but you know 
I'm not sure that the number fifth player in the world and the number one are always that far apart, unless it was during the Tiger Woods era when I think number two in the world, when Tiger was number one, was closer to 100 than he was to Tiger, yeah, just mathematically. Right. So, you know, I think golf's a funny game. Who's the best player? If I, if, if I go out and, and have a great day and, and over nine holes and beat somebody who's much better than me, does, does that make me better? Um, if I have a great week as a tour pro and win a tournament, there's so many people who've won tournaments that are not necessarily great players. And it used to be embarrassing at times on Sky when I did work in the studio when a new winner would come through. And naturally, you, the question is, so where's his career going from now? And you think, oh, probably that's it. He won on the European Tour, won on the PGA Tour, but I don't see any more wins in there. That's not what the game's about. You're supposed to up the player and tell him that, yeah, that's... Uh, yeah, it's going to be a great career and we look forward to it. But not everyone is Tiger Woods. There's only one every 100 years. Well, not 100 years because we have Bobby Jones and Jack Nicklaus and Tiger Woods. So they're my three and others will throw in theirs as well. But uh, best golfer in the world, it's not the person who won last week, but is it? Here, uh, here just quickly, Huggy, is there any, again, devil's advocate? Uh, I'm Mark, uh, Pepper was playing with Martin Keimer. I don't know who the third member of the group was. Uh, George Quitzia. Right. Uh, so there's anything to say. Stop being a dick, Eddie. You know, these guys are trying to make a living. <laughs> I, don't, I spoke to Keimer at the end of the round, and to be fair, um, it was on a second shot to a green. It wasn't a, a tee shot. So Keimer was, you know, some way away from Eddie when he was doing it. And at, when Eddie started doing what he did, um, Keimer, to be fair, wasn't paying that much attention. It was only when and maybe the third ball had disappeared into the water that Keimer said, oh, what's going on here? And he didn't know, I'm not sure, even Eddie knew for sure whether it was four balls or five balls that he'd fired in, because he did it so quickly, apparently. I mean, he was just dropping them and hitting them at the end. So, it, you know, and then he, that was it, I'm done. But uh, at the end, Keimer didn't know for sure how many no. balls Eddie had hit. Just on the Turkish thing, Huggy, maybe you could answer this, and maybe Dennis could, has got an opinion. A lot of the top players are not there. <laughs> Isn't this yeah. the European Tour playoffs? It's a bit. Uh, I mean, you have Keith Pelly and Co. running around like crazy trying to set up these. Uh, I mean, it's an enormous purse, by the way, uh, in Turkey, and a lot of the guys just don't show. Are they making too much money? Are they getting too complacent? I mean, I don't know what's going on. I wrote a piece about that last week for golfworld.com uh, and uh, just saying that very thing that um, what does the European Tour need to do, basically, to get these guys to come? I mean, Justin Rose played last week um he'd won the tournament previous two years and he had to be paid to come and play and defend his title in a seven million dollar event now i hate to single any one guy out but that that's that's the way things are at the moment and it's just it doesn't reflect well on them i don't think i mean i think they, they should make more of an effort i mean they're clearly becoming or being european number one doesn't mean that much to the to the real top guys. I mean, the 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 absolute top echelon. Don't think any of them are playing all three of the the playoff events, if you like, at the end of the European Tour. So you know, the prospect of being number one, well, it's been nice if it happened, but they're not going to make a huge effort to make it happen. I think John's point is that they're not going to make a huge effort because it's not that important to them, uh, because. What really is important is that once you're successful and financially secure and past the 20 million or whatever it is that, that they consider is the point where they can start making decisions based now on their um, 
history of golf, what they want to be remembered for, how many majors. And to a certain extent, this is a product of making the majors more important than they should be. But mm. everyone loves a major. So if you actually, it's a bit like me saying Christmas is too important. Everyone goes, oh, you're crazy. Christmas is a great time. Yeah, but every day is supposed to be good, isn't it? Why are we making Christmas Day so important? Oh, you've just been a killjoy. I'd go back to that point with the, we've made majors, we being you, me, everyone who's involved in media or talking about golf as the big measure of how good someone is until Tiger beats Jack's record, till blah, blah, blah. And therefore, players are so rich, they don't have to worry about, once they're really good and they're really wealthy, they're looking at, okay, I better concentrate on these majors and winning the big events that will make me ready to win majors. So they plan their schedule, nothing to do with money. And that's the big problem that um, you can't control these guys with the money that in the past you could do. Put up a big purse, everyone's going to come and play for it. Put up a big purse now and people are going to say, does it fit my schedule? Is it going to help me get ready for biggies? And the wheelbarrow season that Ernie really came mm. up with, Ernie's generation were the last ones that bothered to get a wheelbarrow and come up and scoop all this money up because they saw it um, in their time it was more about um, financial security. Now you know, if, if you can stay on tour in America for five years with the pension program, you're secure for life. It's, it's wonderful for the players that can do it. Uh, but that, it doesn't breed people who want to be number one money winner. Yeah, I spoke to somebody last week, Dennis, on the tour who shall remain nameless and he had a theory that the, the European tour would have been much better off not making the Rolex series events seven million dollars each been better making them say five and taking that extra money and going to Rory McIlroy and saying right Rory we'll give you ten million dollars if you play in five Rolex series events over each of the next two seasons and guaranteeing yeah. his presence because, to be fair, I mean, if you've got him, I'm not sure that you really need anybody else in Europe. Tiger would be the only other one that would come, well, not just close, but exceed Rory's appeal, to a wider appeal to the public and get people showing up to watch. Yeah, it's a good point. But, but you know, you almost reach the point where it's bribery. How much money do you have to get yeah, this broadcast player? It's a theory that, you know, that would have been one yeah. way to go. Yeah, I can see the theory, but you know, I would say that then you're then you're putting one player above the event, and how much money do you have to pay him to break his schedule so that he can't prepare properly for what's important to him? You know, you in the end you're trying to bribe or or, or overpay the player to be formed against what he feels is the best. In My feeling was that there was a kind of a moot point because Rory probably wouldn't have done that. So you know, yeah. yes, I don't believe that anyone would expect either Tiger in his prime or Rory right now to be saying, I'm going to sell myself for money. Uh, obviously, there's certain sums of money that they all sell themselves for, but it's such a huge amount now, whether that's even available. Yeah. I'm always intrigued by appearance money a bit, because if I'm running the you know, the, the Lawrence Donag Donegan Classic, and I've got, I'm in charge of the budget, I mean, I'd, I'd, and I could have anybody. I'm a, I can have anybody there. I'd pay Tiger and I'd pay Rory and I'd maybe, you know, I'd give expenses. I'd fly them in and put them up in a hotel room to a few others, depending on which part of the world I was in. But if I had those two, I wouldn't care if who else was there. Well, there's not many people bring thousands of people in through the gates. Those two do. But I'm not sure there's too many others. They bring their world rankings. Yes. Unless you can bring a world ranking, 
you become a valuable commodity, even if not one person watched you on the course. Yeah. You bring enough world ranking. And I'm not sure we want to develop that point as to the whys and wherefores, but it, we all know it to be true because it is true. So hang, hang on a second then. So you bring a world ranking. Does that mean that you bring a world ranking weight to the tournament itself? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's the killer. That's the thing that's changed the whole perspective on, uh, on appearance money because if you, if you have an event that's got to have a certain world ranking number and you haven't got it, it makes sense to pay a world-class player to show up with his ranking so that he can uh, avoid you paying the fine that you would need to pay for not getting the rankings up. It's a, it's a, a self-fulfilling circle here. So, and, and that's why it doesn't really matter how bigger box office player someone is if they can bring their world rankings and increase the number past the, the necessary figure then they're worth paying the money to i know it sounds crazy but it's just politics and facts of professional golf a couple of things you just mentioned there um rory mcelroy's not going anywhere for 10 million i, I think it's it's a, it's a drop in a the bucket for rory these days i don't know if you agree with that dennis but the other thing is uh it's 20 million the number i think it's much higher than that now isn't it surely I don't know. <laughs> the figures beyond my uh, personal wealth. I'll probably show up tomorrow for a couple hundred quid if you want me there. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I don't. I don't. I don't bring a lot of world ranking points though, so it's probably not a good idea. And I'll probably struggle to break a, a decent score. Where, um, uh, but it'd be amusement value. No, look, I'm joking about it because I don't know. I literally don't know. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of Rory's. I like him as a golf. I like him as a guy. I've known him since he was a kid, and he's always been good with me. And uh, I just think it is, you know, that great phrase that Tiger perfected. It is what it is. And um, sometimes we can chat, but we ain't changing anything. On the turkey side, uh, Tyrrell Hatton wins on the fourth extra hole. Is he the next world number one? <laughs> no, uh, he's a he's a cracking player, though, Dennis, isn't he? I mean, he's I mean, he he's a kind of complicated guy. Not asking for your opinion as a as a guy, but I mean he is a he is a perplexing mix. He's obviously a good player, but he he has this reputation. Uh, I mean clearly that that works for him. It wouldn't work for a lot of guys, would it? No, it doesn't work for a lot of guys. But you know, let's start with the basics here. He, he turned pro, plus four handicap. He he went on the mini tours. He was a year or two later. He's on the challenge tour. Then he's on the main tour. Then he's winning. Then he's multiple winning. Then he plays Ryder Cups. So whatever the matrix here, whatever you want to measure it by, he's doing good. He's a player. He's a proper player. And, you know, he's the sort of player that could win a major, maybe two or three majors. He's, he's nothing's beyond his capabilities um, because he's, he's the quality. He's the quality player. And then you look at him as a personality. He's fantastic off the golf course. I mean, I'm lucky enough. He plays practice rounds quite a lot with Ross Fisher and they're good pals. And I've, you know, I know Tyrrell and his father and you know his family, his girlfriend, and they're all good people and they're all fun. But when Tyrrell misses a shot, he's not best pleased. And, and <laughs> part of me says, that's how it should be. Now, whether you should express it so obviously, and I mean, the best one ever was when his, his girlfriend was coming out of a Porto loo. And oh, I saw that. Noise. Yeah. And I think that's brilliant because it sums him up. He's about to explode and he sees who it is and he turns to the camera and goes that's that's my girlfriend um, <laughs> he's just brilliant and i put him up there with eddie pepper is that it's different different people um they're not they're not the norms of what you get out on tour and um you know if 
I, I, can't, I can't, I, I for, for the life of me, can't imagine Cyril Hatton doing golf any differently. And everyone who doesn't like it and comes up with all the, the nastiness they put towards him, okay, yeah, but he's a good player, isn't he? He's really a good player. How about that? And they, they don't like that because they think they should all be packaged nicely and be nice, user-friendly, sponsor-friendly, and everyone says it's boring. Boring. Well, one thing you never use when you're watching Cyril Hatton is, isn't he boring? He's never boring. He's, he's exciting. He makes lots of birdies. And when he doesn't, he gets upset with himself. And that's funny. I used to love it when Monty got upset because it was like a sideshow to the main event. <laughs> <laughs> it was lovely to watch. You know, you knew in about 10 minutes' time he was going to be back to normal, but that's the way he was. That's how he operated. And I thought it was fun. I think it added to the occasion. Didn't subtract anything for me, apart from the fact that sometimes I had to tidy that paint mess I talked about <laughs> earlier. It was all over the floor. And it was my job to tidy it up. But that, again, is maybe yeah. a story for another day. But the kind of theory is that you know huge swings in emotions are bad for your for your golf game. Clearly, that's uh, that's not the case, is it? N- not uniformly. Well, not uniformly. No, it's not a case at all. You know, there, nobody had bigger swings in his motion than Monty, and he was yeah. for many a long year, seven of them in a row, and then another one later on, the best player in Europe. And Tyrrell Hatton is is from the same block of. of it doesn't matter if I lose my temper as long as it's lost. And what I mean by that is it's lost. I got upset and then I lost it. It didn't. It went away. I don't know where it went, but I'm now ready to play again. I think many players are convinced that that's good and they act stroppy when it doesn't actually help them. So you could be in a situation where you watch Tyrrell and go, that's acceptable, I'll copy Tyrrell. It actually makes you worse because you're the type of person that needs to contain it and think it and keep it in and and not not backed up like he does. So what's the secret then? Tiger had that 13 steps thing, you know, he'd lose his temper, he'd take 13 steps and then it was gone. Is that the secret then? Is that how you handle it? Is that what Monty did? Yeah, Monty did, but he couldn't count to 13. He kept getting to 39, <laughs> 40, 41. Uh, he kept going higher. So, yeah, I mean, no, I, I, I think you've just got to do, you know, the, We'd, we'd love to think there's a blueprint. you just got to do what suits you best. What I don't like is people copying other people because they think it works for him, it will work for me. Don't copy Tyrrell. It works for Tyrrell. Don't copy Tyrrell unless it genuinely works for you. And then people will be telling you off because you're only a kid and they'll say you shouldn't act like that. And also put your long trousers on and don't wear bright-coloured shoes and stuff like that. But then we go after loads of other topics and... And I know you've got a time limit on me talking, and I can talk uh, for a lot longer, as you both know. Huggy Hatton, what do you think as a player? I mean, you're a good judge of player. Do you think he's a potential major winner, or is that just more of Dennis's short termism? No, no, I, I, you know, <laughs> there, there are players that on Tyrrell Hatton's level who've won majors. There's no doubt about that. Um, so it wouldn't be a huge surprise if he won one. I mean, I couldn't see him winning too many, but I mean, I could definitely see him winning one or two at, at most. Well, he's. He's on that. He's as good as yeah. He's as good as Keegan Bradley, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I've always argued that. I mean, I've written this a couple of times, and I've maybe mentioned it on here even. But uh, that it's only very recently that winning the winner of majors has become a, a pretty or more accurate gauge of how good somebody is. Because you know, I always cite the the group of uh, Europeans that were kind of half a step down from Faldo, Woosnam, Lyle, Langer, Blisket, and Seve. You know, that Howard Clark, Sam Torrance, Ken Brown, Mark James, 
those guys, yep. they basically didn't get to play in majors in America. I mean, you look at their records. I mean, they, they hardly ever played. Now, you're not going to tell me that that group that I just mentioned were any worse as players as uh, Bob Tway or Larry Mize or Jeff Sluman. No. But, you no, know, no. that's just the way it was back then. And But only in the last maybe 25 years. I mean, Seve fought the battle for, for many of these guys. And Ken Schofield followed through by getting the European Tour players of that level onto, into the majors in America. But before that, it was extremely unfair. I mean, look at the... You go back a wee, a wee bit further even, and you got Peter Alice and Neil Coles, who were brilliant players, but never played in American yeah. majors. One major every year. It's an absolute nonsense to use majors as a, as a gauge. And Bobby Locke, even further back, he got run out of town in America because he was too good for them. You know, it's all yeah. things going on. Dennis, which one of that, you know, that generation, uh, Mark James, Ken Brown, Howard Clark, which one of those guys would have... You know, if they'd been allowed to enter those majors or get into those majors, do you think any of them would? Which one of them would have would have won? Would have won a major in the states? It's it's very hard to say. You know, the different ways you think that uh, they would perform because uh, they're different styles to their games. But Howard Clark was such a good striker of the ball and a fiery temperament that that people said held him back. But it also got him in contention. He won enough tournaments. But the player I would have chosen from that group is, is Howard Clark. I would have said that John's right. Any one of them could have, maybe should have, would have, if they'd gone out there. But, uh, you know, major reason why Tony Jackson was such a great major player was he went out to America when mm. it wasn't the thing to do. And he went out and said, I'm as good as these guys. I can beat them. If Howard Clark and, and, and uh, Mark James, Sam Torrance, the players that John just named, had wanted to go out there. But don't forget, the European Tour wasn't developing that quickly when Tony Jackson was making that decision. It, I think it developed after he won in 69 and 70. And it was almost on the back of that. The European Tour was formed in 73. I don't... It might be 74, but that period. And that's when Ken Schofield was able to lever, leverage and, and make the Tour more acceptable. And it grew from there. So... Looking back, I don't criticise those guys. I just think how it would have been different if they were born today. But they probably think that as well when they look at their bank balances and compare it with what they're seeing. Um, each year goes by and, and the the money you need to be on the all-time money list is won by someone who's been playing oh. four or five years. I mean, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? The um, Actually, I think Howard Clark's a quite a good comparison for Tyrrell Hatton. Maybe am I? Yeah, am I mean, that? and you look at the the lucky, you know, say lucky very commas, this generation of European players. I mean, again, you know, the 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 guys that routinely get to play in the American majors now are, are no better than those guys. I'm not having that. I mean, the, the that group that I talked about were they were extremely talented and just as good as the vast majority of the European players that uh, make up the Ryder Cup team these days. And this is getting silly. I'm agreeing with John two or three times oh, in, in an hour, place. and I haven't done that in 25 years. So <laughs> Here, uh, final question, Dennis. Uh, the uh, Turkish Airlines Open finished uh, under floodlights. Oh. I, I thought I thought it looked amazing on telly. Uh, have you got any any views on playing golf under floodlights? It's not as... Uh, I've, I've done it at the Montgomery in Dubai um, with Montgomery, the, the, the main man. And... Uh, only on the par three course there, which was good fun. But I think it adds something. And I also love the idea that they can get it done that night. 
um, you know, it's yeah. a, a tournament that goes into the next morning is is not really hasn't got any more fizz left left in it. I think there was a couple of criticisms playing them in two three balls rather than a six ball. It's yeah. a mistake. It's a, it's a playoff. You've got to play off, put them out in that. So they're more likely to be playing the same conditions at the same time in regards to the light that the floodlights give. Because obviously as the darkness changes, the perceptions, the depth perceptions changes. So I didn't think that was particularly fair. But overall, yeah, um, it's just that not every golf course uh, more doing um, different parts of the world than ours have floodlights on them. But what a great idea. Adds a bit of fun, doesn't it? Oh, it was brilliant. And you bang on, Dennis, the uh, the Sunday night under the floodlights versus the Monday morning with nobody there apart from the two fellas from the Golf Channel and Sky or whatever. Yeah. The only thing, uh, Huggy, is, I mean, I actually played golf under lights last week. I'm trying to, I mean, I'm a shit putter, obviously, but uh, trying to putt because the shadows casting across the green, you think they're slopes and it's, uh, I'm not sure you play your best golf under lights. I don't know. Have you done it, Huggy? Yeah, um, the, the the only thing I found slightly uh, difficult, if you like, was, uh, as Dennis touched on, is the depth perception. I, I tended to hit slightly heavy shots with, with uh, under the lights, but you, so you need a wee bit of time to get used to that, I think. Yeah, yeah but that may, that may have been compensation for the well-renowned huggy-thinned wedge. You never well, know. The, the sickening knee-high fizzer, yes. Yeah, that's the one. You may have been overcompensating. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, uh, sorry, one more question, Dennis. What was it like playing Monty on a Monty golf course? <laughs> was there any... <laughs> <laughs> and, and hang on, and was that not too much Monty? <laughs> no, it was... You heard the expression, my team. It's even better when he says my course, because it is his course, and uh, it was rather wonderful. And I, don't, I can't say, I can't say, and I beat him on it, because it was only the short course where we're hitting 50, 60-yard wedges, but I did end up tying him once on one occasion. Um, but I had to play very well, and I could see that he was very focused playing the last hole. And uh, a tie with Monty on a par three course could actually be the highlight of my career. Now I look back, I may be worth that two two hundred quid appearance money that I spoke about. Yeah, <laughs> uh, uh, actually, again, you were too modest, Dennis. You were quite a good player uh, back in the day. But um, anyway, listen, Dennis, uh, we'll, we'll have to have that conversation about talent and mindset uh, on another podcast. Hopefully, we can persuade you to come back on. It's uh, been fantastic having you on, mate. Uh, tons of really interesting stuff. Uh, and we'll talk to you again soon. All the best. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Thanks a lot.
It's a wild. 